Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host, Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, it is our first podcast of the year. And I'm sitting here as we record this uh, in my home office looking out the window. The snow is falling. Uh, the little Vermont village is looking very pretty. It's mm. been a mild winter so far. Uh, but January is where our winter really normally kicks in and suddenly it's double digit negative temperatures and I'm desperately training space heaters on pipes and mm. so on and so forth. And as we enter 2020, that, as it usually is at the beginning of every year, is my biggest dread of the year, making sure that my pipes don't freeze and <laughs> I have all kinds of dilemma in my house. Um, apart and, from that, and, and that's not a metaphor for anything. No, it's, it's absolutely not. Okay. Uh, <laughs> some pipes have been frozen a long time. Um <laughs> Apart from that, I'm basically, you know, just here we are another year, just looking to get through 2020 in one piece, personally. But um, what about you? I don't know if you're worried about pipes freezing, metaphorically or otherwise, or anything, or if there's anything in particular you're looking forward to in 2020. Uh, well, you know, like uh, like a lot of people, there are certain things that I'm dreading uh, in 2020. This uh, this is going yes. to be on certain fronts uh, <laughs> a challenging year to get through. But yes. uh, yeah, there 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 is one particular thing that I'm uh, excited about. I just learned. There's a show coming to Showtime this summer called Your Honor, and it stars the world's greatest living actor, Brian Cranston. So Walter goddamn White is about to become a co-worker of mine, sort of. Close enough. Whatever. Uh, but uh, I, I'm going to ask the Showtime folks to get him on the podcast for us, and, and then maybe that'll convince you to finally watch the greatest show in the history of television. Uh, and, and this is where you say, but I've already seen Twin Peaks The Return. And then I say <laughs> nothing because I now work for Showtime, and therefore I have no opinion on Twin Peaks The Return. Wow. And I'm the one who lives alone. <laughs> you like the way I can have a whole conversation? I don't even need uh, you. Why are you right. here? <laughs> I, that, that's also a conversation that I have with myself at home. <laughs> well, I'm so disappointed, you know, that HBO never got Drogon the Dragon to come on our podcast. <laughs> right, right. Despite numerous, numerous requests. <laughs> so we maybe tried. Chris de Blasio and the folks at Showtime will, be, will do a better job for he us. Could, he could have kept your pipes warm. <laughs> well, yes, then we would have had another issue. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> yes, indeed. Anyway, I'm I'm just not going to go anywhere else really with that. So, um we'll move <laughs> we'll move on. Yeah. Um you know, it would have involved an heiress, but we're moving on. Um <laughs> So this week, uh, on our first episode of the podcast of 2020, uh, well, we have no fights to review, because there haven't been any yet, because the year is only a couple days old. Uh, but we do have plenty to cover. We will be joined by our old friend, uh, Brian Campbell of CBS Sports, uh, to make a few predictions for the year ahead of us in boxing. Uh, we will also open up the listener mailbag for the first time in a little while and answer some of your questions. And additionally, we'll cover a little bit of news and preview a couple of fights coming up this coming Saturday night. But we start with an in-depth look at the fight card this Friday night, January 10th, the first major televised boxing event of 2020, a triple header at Ocean Casino Resort in Atlantic City, which has gone through a major rebranding. It was until recently Ocean Resort Casino. <laughs> yes. But I'm glad they changed that. Uh, uh, that starts at 9 p.m. Eastern, uh, kicks off three straight weekends of live boxing on Showtime. And in the main event of this Showtime Boxing Special Edition, uh, hopefully, third time is the charm as the quote. Clarissa Shields and Ivana Habazin will hopefully step into the ring and fight for a 154-pound belt. Uh, this fight was supposed to happen in August. It got postponed because Shields suffered an injury to her right knee in training. It was rescheduled for October 5th, and we all know what happened there at the weigh-in. Habazin's trainer, James Ali Bashir, attacked from behind, suffered serious head, head injuries, went to the hospital, and the fight was called off. It has now been scheduled again. We have previewed it once already, of course, and some of the plot lines remain the same. Shields dropping in weight to 154 pounds, trying to be the fastest fighter in history to win titles in three divisions. Uh, so I'll start by asking you, Eric, is there anything new that we haven't discussed? What has changed since that fight was called off? Uh, does the weigh-in incident change anything? Um, and has the challenge of Clarissa getting down to 154 pounds changed in any way with her having made the weight? three months ago and presumably having had to stay down close to that weight in the time since. 
Yeah, in terms of the weight, um, yeah, that, that might be a positive for her. She said recently from her training camp in Miami that she was on weight in October. Uh, even if we never saw the proof on the scales, uh, you tend to believe that she was indeed uh, ready to make 154. And she said she stayed in training and only put on about 10 pounds uh, at, at, her, at her max. Uh, so that's encouraging. Uh, when you get acclimated to the weight and you aren't spending your whole camp struggling to get down to 154 because you're within a few pounds of the target the whole time. I see every reason to believe Claressa won't be weakened at 154 pounds. Um, So you asked what's changed. Well, there's a grudge now. Uh, Mm. Maybe they didn't really like each other in the first place, uh, but now it's personal. And uh, if Habazin is pissed, you can understand why. Uh, Shields's brother was the one who was arrested for attacking her coach. That would be enough to affect Habazin emotionally coming into this fight. But then on top of that, in one of her first interviews immediately after the incident, <laughs> Shields said a few things that she really shouldn't have said. Yeah. Uh, saying, uh, Ivana has no excuses for canceling the fight. Quote, I'm quite sure she has another coach that she can fly in uh, and quote, uh, nothing happened to her. Uh, Really not the best side of Clarissa there. Uh, She later walked it back and supported the decision to postpone the fight. Uh, But still in the lead up to this one, she's been talking trash again, talking about Habazine disrespecting her and she's going to knock her out. Um, So you never know how that sort of thing will translate in the ring, but tempers have flared in the buildup we could see a much more emotional fight on Friday than would have been the case in October. Will we see a competitive fight, though? Um, You know, it's impossible not to notice here how much more proven Shields is than Habazin. Claressa is 86-1 as a pro and amateur, and the combined record of her nine pro opponents is 108 wins, 13 losses, one draw. Habazin's 23 opponents a combined 124, 141, and 3. Uh, Habazin is experienced. She's fought in eight different countries. This fight will make nine, but she's lost almost every time she's stepped up, and there's a concern that Shields is going to be a full level, uh, or two or three levels above her. Uh, on the other hand, Shields has been dropped. Habazin never has, and Shields, incredibly, has yet to knock an opponent down. Uh, so break it down, Kieran. Does Habazin have a chance here, or is the intrigue limited to the question of whether Shields, who's been taking the distance five straight times, can score that elusive stoppage? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's it's boxing, so, you know, she certainly has a, has a chance. But, you know, it's interesting... Not only has Shields fought uh, a higher caliber of opposition, it's really interesting to delve into the numbers a little bit here and see how dominant she's been against that that opposition. I was looking at some of the background info that our friends at CompuBox provided for for this card, and and one a couple of things that really leapt out at me here. So Shields' nine professional opponents to date have combined to land a total of just 463 punches against her. Um, nine nine opponents combined. And what makes that even more impressive is that more, more than 25% of those were landed by just one opponent, uh, Hannah Gabriel, who landed 133 punches over 10 rounds. And then behind her are Tori Nelson with 81 over 10, Hannah Rankin with 75 over 10, and Christina Hammer, the other opponent to last 10 rounds with Shields, and who was supposed to be our toughest foe to date, who landed just 49. Um, what this kind of suggests is that as she's getting more experienced and even as she's fighting tougher opposition, Claressa Shields is getting better. Hmm. She's getting harder to hit even as she continues to land consistently. Now, it should be noted that Habazin too has good defense uh, and was in fact barely touched in her two CompuBox tracked bouts against Gifty Ankara and Eva Bech. Uh, she was touched by, on average, just two punches per round by those two. Um, but as we've already talked about, those two are at nothing like the level of opposition Shields has been facing. And and what's also interesting, again, to continue with the CompuBox stuff, you look at the type of offense that these two uh, fighters have. And Habazin relies almost exclusively on her jab. Uh, 68% of her punches against Iron Club were jabs, 59.5% against Beitch. And we know who else uh, moves in and out and relies on jabs. Christina Hammer. Right who did not fare very well against Shields with that relatively one-dimensional offense. Uh, in, in contrast, approximately 15 of the 18 punches that Shields on averages lands per round are power shots. So even though we know she can box and moves and is becoming better at that, 
Shields is still a much heavier puncher and a harder puncher. So yes, Habazine has a chance. She's swift. She can shift from southpaw to orthodox, which is interesting. She moves well. Uh, and, you know, as, as we talked about, we don't know whether Shields would be strong at 154. Although, like you, I rather suspect she'll do very well at it. But Shields has for the better competition. She's naturally stronger. She's more versatile. She hits harder. And so, yeah, for me, I do think the biggest unknown is whether she can actually finally translate that into a knockdown or a knockout and the it's be very easy for me to then go from there to say exactly what i think is going to happen since you've basically more or less asked me to make a prediction on the <laughs> right. fight but but we have there's we have a way of doing these things um we are starting up a new year of our picks competition it is double or nothing on that dollar you won last year um despite you know you're not doing the necessary drug tests but um <laughs> As a refresher for those who might be new or who have forgotten over the holidays, um, we award one point for correctly naming the winner. You get a bonus point if you correctly predict whether it will be a knockout or a decision. And if you get the type of decision correct, that's worth one additional point, while the exact round of a knockout merits three bonus points. Uh, Eric, you went last on our final pick of 2019, so I shall pause in the midst of my prediction of how things are going to go and let you go up first on this one. Okay, uh, and yeah, I come in. I come into this uh, now, though you having given away that you are probably not picking Habazine to win, uh, right. and uh, yeah, I can't see any reason to pick Habazine to win. Uh, the sports books have her as a sixteen to one underdog, and. I don't think I'd bet on her at sixteen to one. So I'm certainly not picking her in our comp- competition where I'm basically getting the same odds on both fighters. Uh, the question of knockout or decision, uh, as you said, that's that's the really tough one. Really interesting. Um, you pointed out how stylistically Habazine has a lot in common with Christina Hammer. You know, using the jab, boxing on her toes, uh, and as we all know, Shields had no problems with Hammer. You also pointed out one thing that's different about Habazine is that she's a switch hitter. And I feel like that can make a difference in terms of surviving and lasting the distance. She might be able to give Clarissa enough different looks to keep uh, Shields from from fully letting her offense go. So I'm going to say Habazine does find a way to survive. If they were fighting three-minute rounds, I'd say Shields by knockout. But with these two-minute rounds, she's not a very heavy-handed puncher. Habazine seems to be able to take a shot. I think she'll last the distance. Uh, my first official pick of 2020 is Shields by unanimous decision. So are, are we going to start the year in full agreement, uh, or is this the dawn of a new Raskin and Mulvaney? Sound the disagreement klaxon. All we right. are, someone is going to be taking an early lead here. Uh, okay. So look, I, I, as you surmised, and it's pretty clear from what I said, I am going with Shields. Uh, she's better. She hits harder. She has more versatility. She's fought a better level of competition. And and the only two issues are, A, how she'll cope at 154, having been at 168 just a couple of fights ago, and B, whether she'll score a knockdown and or stoppage. Uh, I, and I do think she'll do just fine at 154. She looks great at the weight. Um, you know, physically, it just looks as if it suits her very well. Uh, she's recently stopped eating meat uh, as part of her, you know, mm. just, just general diet and, and health. And, and that certainly, she said that that has helped her also uh, sort of stay down near that way. Um, obviously, we'll keep her, help help her keep trim and fit. Um, I, and I think actually that being down at 154 worked to her advantage. She'll still be the naturally stronger, bigger person. But I think, you know, she'll also, you know, find herself obviously with faster hands and lighter feet. And actually, I do think the delay is going to work to her advantage because she will have had several extra months to be used to being at that size and at that weight. Um, so it won't be such a struggle for her. Uh, and as a result, I do think she will stop Habazine, who, who I just don't think is in her class. Uh, Habazine has said she's happiest at 145, and she's facing an opponent who has walked around at 180. Um, will Shields get a knockdown? I don't know. Um, and I agree with you. It's those two-minute rounds really are the biggest factor. Uh, so many times we've seen Clarissa Shields get a really good head of steam going in a round, and then before you know it, the bell the bell rings. I don't know that she will, but I do think she'll get a stoppage. Um, I just think ultimately the accumulation of punches is, is going to be a bit too much, and Habazine's just not going to have anything to keep her off her. Uh, Clarissa Shields, TKO, round seven. Okay, if if that's exactly how it turns out, if you pick up the full five points here with the TKO round seven, I might just throw in the towel and quit for the year and, and concede in January that it's Mulvaney's year. There you go. Typical. <laughs> Front runner. 
<laughs> That's exactly what I am. Um, all right, we'll go a little more quickly with our previews and predictions for the two undercard bouts, and we start with one-time podcast guest Jaron Boots, not Boops, but Boots, <laughs> Ennis meeting Bakhtiar Baka Yubov of Kazakhstan. Ennis is 24-0 with 22 knockouts, just 22 years old, and Yubov is 14-1-1 with 12 knockouts and one no contest. That record sounds pretty strong, but he has struggled since a 13-0 and start to his career. Yubov has fought twice on Showbox, uh, and Pauli Malinaji said he was one of the hardest punchers he ever sparred with. Uh, Ennis, meanwhile, is one of the very best prospects in all of boxing. We were both impressed with him last time out when he dispatched Damian Fernandez in three rounds in what became the main event of the previous attempted Shields-Habazine card in Flint, Michigan. Yubov is not a great defensive fighter, and he says, quote, I enjoy getting hit. <laughs> How much is he going to enjoy it against Boots Ennis? Uh, And what are you looking to see from Ennis in this fight, Karen? Uh, He will not enjoy getting hit by Ennis, but I think the one thing he has going for him is that I doubt he'll have to get hit for all 10 rounds. Um, He's he's an unusual fighter, Yubov, and he's the kind of opponent who at the right level uh, can be hellish to fight. You know, he keeps coming forward. He does hit hard, but he also throws a ton of punches. That's an unusual combination to have somebody who comes forward, throws a ton of punches and still like really hits hard. Uh, But he does that and he marches forward behind uh, an awkward sort of bob and weave style. Um, He will make you fight. Uh, You're not going to have an easy night. But uh, as you noted, uh, after a good start to his career, he has kind of begun to hit the buffers a little bit. He's he's won just one of his last four. The draw he had in that one, one and one and one no contest stretch should probably, according to many observers, have gone down as a defeat. Certainly statistically, he he was outlanded in that fight. Um, He is getting easier to hit. And it seems that as he's slowing down in the course of fights, as fights progress and and he sort of gets cracked. Bad news for you, Bob. Uh, Ennis is an active and accurate puncher, and it seems that to to get the better of him, you need to be able to uh, at least throw as roughly as many punches as him and be more accurate than him. And Ennis also is increasingly throwing to body as well as to head. He's becoming more versatile, as we've seen. Um, and he's also head and shoulders above anyone Yubov has faced before. Um, widely considered one of the best, if not the best, prospects in boxing. Um, you know, what I want to see from, from Ennis is I think that Yubov, you know, for the first couple of rounds, might pose a wee bit of a challenge because he does have that sort of bob and weave style initially until he starts getting hit. Just want to see NSB patient, uh, figure him out, start landing, you know, maybe not uh, uh, overcommit with punches early on, start landing, start straightening him up, start stiffening him up, um, keeping him in front of him and then gradually increasing the pressure. I, I think that you buff takes Ennis a little deeper than Boots has been in his last couple of fights. Um, uh, John probably will take a couple of rounds to get his timing right. But once he does, and he starts landing. It'll be a brutal evening for the Kazakh until Ennis finally scores what I think will be a fairly bloody stoppage win in about round six. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, just looking at the styles here, Yubov being an offensive-minded pressure fighter, I just feel like that spells disaster against Boots yeah. Ennis. Um, the talent is obvious with Ennis. Uh, the power is there. He will land on Yubov, and he will hurt him, and I, too, believe he will stop him. The question is just how many rounds it takes. Uh, Ennis's last six fights have all ended within three rounds. He has 10 first-round knockouts. Uh, but like you, I see him getting a little more work in here uh, with the Atlantic City crowd rooting him on. Presumably there'll be some uh, Philadelphians there, a bit of a, a local crowd pulling for Ennis. I will say that Boots gets the TKO in round five. So one round quicker than you predicted. All righty. All righty. And opening the broadcast, we have another women's bout. Uh, this one potentially setting the table for the next Claressa Shields fight if Shields prevails against Habazine. It is Alicia Napoleon Espinosa, 12-1 and with seven knockouts out of Lindenhurst, New York, meeting Sweden's Ellen Cedros, 7-0 and and four KOs in a 10-round bout for a super middleweight belt. Uh, lots of fun facts here about Espinosa, actually. Uh, she's trained Toby Maguire. So there's that. Uh, she's a part owner of two boxing gyms in New York, and she paints while wearing her boxing gloves. But the most fun <laughs> fact of all would be if someone emerges from this fight looking like a viable threat to Shields. So, Eric, how well matched are Espinosa and Cedros? 
And do you expect the winner to actually be a marketable opponent for Clarissa, assuming Clarissa beats Habazin? Yeah, these two are quite well matched. This is certainly the most even fight on the card. Uh, I see the sports books make Espinosa the favorite, but not by a huge margin. Uh, Cedros is bigger. Uh, she's a career-long super middleweight, whereas Espinosa is a small middleweight uh, moving up who says her best weight is actually 154. She's the much smaller fighter here, uh, but she doesn't back down. You might say she has a Napoleon complex. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 2020 is going to be a long mm. year for you, Mulvaney. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for all the listeners. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, this, this should be... Uh, a competitive, interesting fight, if a sloppy one. Bo- both women can yeah. be a, a bit wild and inaccurate, uh, and that's why whoever wins will certainly be a huge underdog against Clarissa Shields if, if that if it progresses to uh, the winner facing Shields if Shields beats Habazin. Um, you know, Clarissa has the technique to box rings around either of these ladies, uh, but that doesn't mean it won't be marketable. Uh, by putting this fight on the Shields-Habazin undercard, you're exposing the winner to the perfect target audience. You're building the fight. It all makes sense. The winner just needs to win impressively, and she will be a logical next opponent for Shields. So who will that winner be? Uh, I'm up first with my prediction on this one, and I like what I've seen out of Espinoza. She's aggressive. She's busy. She's hungry. And despite giving up probably 10 pounds or so on the scales, I think she can do damage against Ceteros. I'm going with Espinoza by late stoppage, let's say KO8. And we have our first agreement of the year. Um, you know, Cedros, like you said, she is the naturally bigger woman, but that just hasn't bothered Napoleon Espinosa at all before. Um, she's really torn through larger and more experienced opponents. And and Cedros, while being another one who, who relies on her jab, she isn't especially accurate with it. And, and that's why I think, you know, you, you, there's a lot of sense there in what you said about this possibly being a sloppy fight. Cedros uh, with a jab that doesn't always land particularly well, and Napoleon Espinosa can sometimes get carried away with her offense. Um, it may not be pretty, but I do think that Napoleon Espinosa's uh, strength and power uh, will be enough to take her past Cedros. And I think eventually, despite being the bigger woman, she won't have enough to, to keep Napoleon Espinosa off. And I actually did have eight rounds as the round for the stoppage. So whatever happens here, this is not going to be the fight that separates us at the beginning of the year. No, no. This is this is what Raskin and Mulvaney do. That's right. Exactly. Um, so the night after Shields Habazin, uh, there are a pair of televised fight cards, one on zone one on ESPN. Uh, not much on the undercards, but the main events are, are both interesting. I particularly like the ESPN headliner uh, at light heavyweight Philadelphia's Jesse Hart against the man who ended Bernard Hopkins' career, Joe Smith. Uh, that's at the Hard Rock in Atlantic City, making this a strong live boxing back-to-back in AC for those yeah. looking to make a weekend of it. Uh, the DAZN card at the Alamo Dome in San Antonio sees Jaime Munguia move up to middleweight where he meets Spike O'Sullivan. This might well be a competitive fight, but I have a hard time getting O'Sullivan's first round KO loss to David Lemieux out of my head. What do you think, Kieran? Uh, which of these two fights interests you more? Purely on a personal level, I guess of the two, I'm slightly more looking forward to Maria O'Sullivan simply because I know both guys a little bit, um, interviewed them both, and because I was ringside for Munguia's rise to prominence on HBO. Um, but I'm the same as you. It's hard to put that sight of O'Sullivan just being absolutely crushed in one round um by lemieux uh out, out of my mind and, and as we discussed a few weeks ago it does feel as if this is the perfect opponent for munguia to make his step up to middleweight i just don't think he's going to be as successful at middleweight as he as he was against junior middleweight um but spike o'sullivan i do think has been picked as the perfect opponent to make him look dangerous at middleweight because he'll be there for munguia to hit um, and he doesn't necessarily have the best punch resistance. And every time he has sort of stepped up that level, he has fallen short, O'Sullivan. So I'm interested in it, but I would be surprised if this is anything less than a, a Mungia win. Uh, Hart Smith should be more competitive. Uh, you'd favor Hart. Um, <clears throat> you know, the only person he's fallen short against is, is Gilberto Ramirez. But, um, you know, Smith does have a big punch. He's strong. He hung in there reasonably well against Dimitri Bivol. And, you know, he lost to Sullivan Barrera, but, but you know, was carrying a, a bad injury in that fight. Um, he's nothing special, Joe Smith, but he's one of these guys 
who if you if you get within range of his punches, if you allow him to, to tag you, he's going to hurt you. Um, and uh, so Jesse Hart's the favorite here, but this is by no means a very, very clear A-side, B-side uh, fight. I, I think it could be close. I fully expect Hart to win, but I am kind of looking forward to it. Yeah, and and going back to uh, what you said about uh, Mungia and O'Sullivan, uh, yeah, Mungia's people, you know, they very clearly targeted the exact guy they want to fight here. So Mungia had better be able to look good against this particular opponent with right. this particular style. Otherwise, the Mungia bandwagon fully empties out if he can't yep. look good against Spike O'Sullivan. Yep. All right. Well, look, so far on the podcast, we've been looking ahead to this coming weekend's fights, the first notable fights for 2020. But now we're going to look a little bit further ahead and we're adding a third voice to the conversation. One of our favorite guests, one of our best friends in the business. You know him from his work on CBS Sports covering boxing, MMA and pro wrestling. He is the host of the State of Combat podcast. He is Brian Campbell. Brian I know you are not exactly in the best of health right now, and I greatly appreciate the fact that you've peeled yourself off your deathbed to join us. But there's one advantage here to the fact that you're joining us as you suffer from pneumonia. Absolutely nothing whatsoever is expected of you in this segment. I mean, like nothing. There is nothing you can say, no matter how ridiculous or off the wall or indefensible, that cannot be explained away either by illness or by the medication that you're taking. So uh, on that note, welcome, buddy. <laughs> wow talk about a build-up that's been that's fantastic uh yes battling pneumonia but this was the only show i accepted during my illness uh, wow. nice down all right shout out to the showtime family on that one uh, we, we we feel special and we, we appreciate it and he says pneumonia i'm saying it with air quotes we know it's actually an, an assortment of stds so that's my understanding <laughs> uh, but uh whatever it is thanks for toughing it out and coming on the podcast always great to talk to you bc Right back at you guys. We go back a long way. I remember when I was just fans of Raskin Mole. Now I'm like, you know, brothers. Our superior. And <laughs> yes, I was just going to say, you're you're way ahead of us at this point. You're, at this point, you're your slumming dust. it with us. So. <laughs> oh, how dare you. <laughs> All right, so uh, so let's get to some boxing. We're going to be discussing three major topics for 2020. Three questions that... I don't think are easy to answer, but should generate some stimulating conversation. And let's start with the heavyweight division. Uh, here's the question. Will there be a clear top dog in the division by the end of 2020? And if so, who? And uh, Brian, as our guest, uh, why don't you uh, take the question first? Uh, the answer is no. It's a sad answer, but it's a realistic answer. And that's because I can't see Anthony Joshua fighting the winner of the February Wilder Fury rematch which would be probably the most important fight you can make in 2020. One of the sexiest and certainly would finally give us that answer of who is the best heavyweight, obviously a title we haven't seen on anyone since Klitschko's uh, run there mm. over the worst era in heavyweight history. And the reason why I say that is politics and it sucks. And I wish I could have more optimism, but guys, this is a topic I debate a lot on many different shows. There's a male and a female part that connects in life. And it creates life, right? I'm not. I'm not trying to talk to you about marriage here or or uh, abortion. I'm saying to make pay-per-view fights happen, you got to have a male and a female part that both do pay-per-view. Up to this point, Anthony Joshua being one of the faces of DAZN, the streaming network, they don't do pay-per-view. Every time I ask anybody, either on DAZN, with Fox, with PBC, with Showtime, with anybody, can you do the big fights? On the other side of the street with DAZN, the answers are always awkward. So until I see DAZN get into the pay-per-view business, until I see somebody from DAZN go, you know what? There's so much money in doing this pay-per-view on Showtime or Fox that we've got to make that leap. I think we end 2020 with possibly two, not one, Wilder Fury fights and mm -hmm. Anthony Joshua fighting two others and probably winning and still in that same spot of who is the best. Maybe the winner of Wilder Fury will be the best from a pound-for-pound pound status, especially given Anthony Joshua having lost in 2019, but I don't see us having that answer at the end of the day because I still don't see the financials making sense. I still don't see the male and the female part connecting. We can't have a baby, Eric. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to decide whether to chalk up the male-female thing as a, uh, attribute that to the pneumonia or the medication, but I'm going to excuse you on, on one basis or the other from going down that road. Yeah, and so, yeah, I also agree. I don't think 
we will have one. Um, we may have two, but we could even actually end up in an even more clouded situation, I think, by the end of the year. Um, so even if this Wild of Fury rematch produces a definitive winner, if I understand correctly, BC, from what Bob Aram has said, the there's no mandate for a third fight. But if the winner, if the loser of the second fight demands a third fight, then the winner is has to give it to him is my understanding and, and so it's hard to uh, see a situation in which either guy loses that second fight and then doesn't demand a third fight so you've got to figure that wilder and fury are just going to keep each other busy uh all through during 2020 it and would not be a bad move marketing wise and if you see that the way the details of that fox espn co pay-per-view have been presented through the media through the pen of people like mike coppinger it seems like one network will handle the first and one network will handle the second and if that remains to be true you'd have to believe a two-fight plan was in place from the beginning and if it was guys this is a topic rafe bartholomew and i have debated a few times on the cbs boxing podcast is did they make this deal which was announced back in May, mind you, when Deontay Wilder first put out that tweet before we ever saw the results of AJ Andy Ruiz one. Mm -hmm. Was this made as a combined sort of middle finger to Eddie Hearn and the zone and said, look, you guys are on your own island with that other platform. Our private parts will not be connecting. We're going to tie each other up for the next year and a half so that your guy will stand alone as that other heavyweight. Hey, it kind of makes sense now. Right. Some of that makes sense, but the rest we'll, we'll, put, we'll put aside to the medication. But yeah, so so if those guys are, are, are busy, you know, then neither, like you said, is going to have a chance to fight AJ. And as you said, maybe that was part of the plan anyway. And then as for AJ himself, he has he's in this position where he's got like two sanctioning body mandatories. And I assume he'll knock off one of them, which, if I understand correctly, is Kubrat Pulev. But the other mandatory is Alexander Usyk. And if he does fight him... I'm not saying that Joshua will lose to Usyk, but he could, which could cloud the situation even more. Or I think suspect it's more likely that sanctioning body strips AJ for fighting Pulev instead of Usyk. And now we've got Alexander Usyk parading himself around potentially as, as a heavyweight titleist, which could further cloud it. So if AJ remains undefeated, Usyk has a belt, Wilder and Fury, you know, maybe they split their two fights. It's really close. Um, we could actually end up in a more uh, clouded situation at the end of the year than we are right now. And you're right. But if we get to that scenario that you just explained, that wouldn't be necessarily bad because at least the best will be set up to be facing the best. Unlike 2019, where it was sort of a pause year. I mean, you guys remembered Fury Wilder won at the end of 2018. I mean, it was just a damn classic. And there was so much momentum entering the new year of, yes, all these guys are going to fight each other. I hate the boxing bingo of politics of the scenario you just laid out. Well, maybe they'll strip AJ. Maybe Usyk will have a chance to fight for that belt. But if you tell me the end of 2020, we're going to see Anthony Joshua against Alexander Usyk in some kind of unification heavyweight bout that's going to be super damn important and 50-50 on paper, and we may get two Wilder Fury fights, that's a victory. Yeah. <laughs> the way that we get there is is always a little corrupt and weird, and you can blame the medication that anyone, including Bob Arum, is taking. But that's, that's a good-ass year of entertainment, yeah. so I would be down for it. Yeah. No, so I have a slightly different take on what it would take to sort of establish a clear top dog in the division, because to me, if if there's a definitive winner in Fury Wilder 2, to me, that person is the man, even if he hasn't cleaned out the division. To right. me, he's clearly the guy that you need to beat to become the man, in part because Anthony Joshua lost last year, even though he avenged it. To me, Fury Wilder determines who's number one, even though I absolutely agree with you guys. We're not getting like full unification and full clarification. But like Kieran, I'd absolutely say keep an eye on Usyk. He's the wild card. Um, but, you know, for, for the moment, uh, this is all about... Uh, Fury Wilder 2 setting the rest of the uh, dominoes in motion and I truly have no idea what's going to happen in that fight and I want to get you guys quick reaction to some betting odds that are out there Um, at one sports book Wilder is a plus 118 underdog Fury is a minus 150 favorite okay pretty standard there although some sports books have it closer to dead even Um, but I found the method of victory odds fascinating Uh, I tweeted a week or so ago that if I bet this fight, it'll be either Wilder by knockout or Fury by decision. Might as well get those better odds, because to me, the fight has to end in one of those two ways. So I was looking at the odds. Turns out Wilder by KO is plus 150, so bet 100 to win 150. Fury by decision is also 
plus 150. Mm. But here, here's the twist. Wilder by decision is plus 1,200, 12 to 1. Uh, am I crazy, wow. or is that a great price on, a, on an un- unlikely scenario, but not an impossible scenario? And then also, I should note, Fury by knockout is plus 360, uh, which is weird because I think Wilder by decision is probably so more likely much, than Fury than much by knockout. Likely. Yeah, so, so I'm curious for you guys' quick reactions. Uh, which of those might you bet if you, if you had to bet one of those outcomes? Oh, I'm staying the hell away from Fury by knockout. I know that much. That's a right. terrible, terrible bet. Yeah, I would abs- I would leap on Wilder by decision. All it takes is a few knockdowns. We've already seen how close he came to getting right. a decision last time in a fight that people maybe thought he wasn't going to win. So plus 1,200 for Wilder by decision? Absolutely. Uh, see, you're right on like, okay, Fury will never knock him out, even though before every fight, Fury says, I'm going to knock the other exactly. guy out. <laughs> but yet in round 12 in the first fight, when he got up and Wilder was obviously fatigued from 12 full rounds, Fury was coming on. This ain't one of those, hey, let's have a weird uh, debate in the back of Jimmy's Corner in New York. And no, Margarito <laughs> was coming on in the Cotto rematch. No, he wasn't, guys. All right? He really wasn't. Fury was coming on here. It's not impossible that would, that would happen. But, Eric, you did bring up that real interesting point. It was Rod Stewart, guys, who said some guys have all the luck, right? <laughs> some guys get all the poontang, right? So, you know, I, don't think that's, I don't think that second line is direct from the song. <laughs> Well, look, there are people named Canelo Alvarez, named Deontay Wilder, who get the benefit of the doubt in every single friggin' situation. Right. Does the judges prefer their power shots? Maybe. Or does the judges prefer their politics? I'm not here to tell you the reason. But good God, if Wilder came out with a draw in that first fight. And yes, I'm still looking at you, Dan Raphael and Lance Pugmire for those awful scorecards. And yes, Karen, <laughs> Trout did beat Canelo. So you can take that to the bank. The blood bank, brother. Um, it's, it's an interesting bet to the idea of if Fury survives once again, meaning doesn't get knocked out, whether it's close enough for the judges to give it to Deontay. That's a hell of a bet right there. Yeah. yeah. All right, next topic. And this is a good way to wrap all of the best fighters into one conversation. Will one of the current pound-for-pound pound top five lose in 2020 that top five for the purposes of this discussion uh, and i think generally by consensus for most folks uh, in some order or another is vasily lamachenko terence crawford canelo alvarez naoya inoue and errol spence bc i think it's certainly possible and i'm going to say i hope that it happens because if it does it would mean that all five of these guys would have significantly challenged themselves which is what we want because as you guys know when you get to the this level As a critically regarded fighter, you're typically are gaining a certain level of commercial value. And the more commercial value you have, the more likely you are to be the face of a network and not as easy to make these big, big fights. Vasily Lomachenko is going to fight Teofimo Lopez most likely in April. Right there, you do have an opportunity for someone to lose. But overall, I'm specifically looking at Terrence Crawford and Errol Spence. I want to see those two potential all-time great welterweights, potential like the Leonard and Hearns of this era, potentially. I know that's sacrilegious to some people. I want to see the match as tough as possible. Hopefully, Errol Spence is completely back mentally and physically from the accident, but he's already talking about coming right back against the Manny Pacquiao, against the Danny Garcia. If Terrence Crawford and Bob Arum can figure out the divide that they have being on their own island, there's no Americans left in that bullpen, right? Unless you're going to reach down to 140 or go up to 154, you have to find a sexy, challenging matchup. If they can, yes, there's always a chance that these guys are going to lose. Could we get Spence Crawford in 2020? No, we're not. it's not happening. So that's just not as likely. You never know with Inoue. He challenges himself every friggin' fight. And I'm not sure his power won't carry up to welterweight one day because that guy is that freaking special and it's bizarre. But I'm going to say no but I'm going to say I hope. Boy, how about answering every que- every part of that question without actually answering it? <laughs> that's, that that is, that's my job. Right. <laughs> it's called it's called being a member of the media. If uh, you want to uh, you want to stick around in this business, you got to know how to BS and tap dance your way around without actually saying anything. Exactly. Um, but um, I look at these, this list of five, and I think three of the five could be in a position to lose this year. I think Crawford is probably safe. I, I doubt he's going to face a serious threat, unfortunately. I'd love to see him and Spence, like you said, Brian. And that way, uh, barring a draw, for sure, somebody on this list takes an L. But I, I don't think it's happening this year. Uh, in Oui, I'd be pretty surprised if he lost uh, in 2020, despite showing some vulnerability in his last fight uh, against Donaire. Uh, the other three... 
all possible uh, to me. Uh, Lomachenko, uh, my lukewarm take for a year, has been that, even though I think he's the best boxer on the planet, I think he's past his absolute peak, and he's likely to fight Teofimo Lopez, as you said. That's that's a losable fight there. Uh, Canelo, he cuts it close in a lot of fights. Uh, it, it wouldn't be shocking to see him lose to a, a Callum Smith or a Demetrius Andrade or whoever he fights. And Spence, I think he's the clear number five here for now. Uh, I'm not quite convinced that he's on the same level as these other four. And he had the accident. He has to come back from that. He has plenty of challenging opponents on the PBC side. So, yeah, I'd say he could lose. He almost did his last fight against Sean Porter. Um, So it's one of those things where I look at those five. I don't think there's any one of the five who I would predict individually will lose in 2020. But I would say the odds are better than 50-50 that one of them will lose. Yeah, you didn't say anything either. That was great, Eric. That was great. <laughs> just yeah, different, just dif- different ways of tap dancing around. Different, different approaches. Same, uh, same conclusion. Yeah, yeah. And and Ollie, look, given what we know at this moment, and you guys have both touched on this, I feel as if at this moment, early in the year, the most likely of those five to lose is the man who I think is by miles the best of all of them, which is Vasily Lamachenko, and that's. You know, simply because we know that he's in a potentially very dangerous fight again in April, potentially against Teofimo Lopez. I don't think he I wouldn't favor him to lose that fight, but right out of the gate, he very much could. Um, yeah. And as for the others, yeah, Canelo, we don't know who he's going to fight or against whom, but he does have a tendency to pick pretty dangerous opponents and to run them close. But against that, as BC was saying earlier, when it is close, he's always going to get the rub of the green anyway. Um, so, you know, he if he fought, say, a, uh, you know, Callum Smith and, and and someone else, you know, a, a really good, solid guy, he could he could go 2-0 and win fighter of the year, or he could finally suffer a loss. Um, right. In a way, and Spence, you know, because of injury, they might only fight once um, this year. You'd never know. I mean, Spence is really unclear about it. He said he was going to come back summer. We'll see. And, and, you know, that kind of limits the likelihood of you uh, uh, losing. So if you're only going to fight the one time. Um, and I don't think outside of Errol Spence, there's anybody who even has a chance of beating Terence Crawford. I think Terence Crawford is far and away the most likely to, to end up with a remain a zero at the end of his record. So at the moment, it's hard to say, but we know that Lomachenko has got a dangerous fight. So that's a possibility. But I suspect that none of them will lose. But for silly Mike. Hey, Eric, did you catch that, that British slang there when Karen said rub of the green? Yes, to me, yes, that I heard that. Like a Saturday night for a lonely, rich teenager. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Okay, I'm, yeah, I'm guessing there has some, it has some sort of uh, Irish uh, connection. Is that the green uh, that you're referring to? Is, like, is it like luck of the Irish rub of the green? Is that, no, is that I, I, always, I always assumed it was uh, to do with like snooker, actually. I don't even know what snooker is. Now, is that like, is that pool? Is that the it's other like word for pool? pool? With a bigger okay. table. Okay, gotcha. All right. Yeah. <laughs> now, now I have no idea what we're talking about at all. But I, I will I, just note that I miss the days when Brian was talking about male and female parts. <laughs> oh, really? Hey, can I hijack your show real quick since we're on pound for pound? Do you agree with these humans who give pound for pound votes to heavyweights just because they knock people out? So you're saying that people are putting heavyweights on their list just because they're impressed by the punching power is that what you're saying I'm saying people have deontay wilder in their top 10 pound yeah. for pound and when uh, a guy knocks people like that out i know there's always an argument I but a we saw him lose to fury and b shouldn't it be harder for a heavyweight to get pound for pound recognition because they're typically not as skilled as the smaller fighters and the pound for pound structure is in theory the only way that we are able to compare smaller fighters to the baddest men on the planet Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that point that it, it generally is a little harder for a heavyweight to get on. I don't have that Larry Merchant rule that I won't rank a heavyweight. Uh, I'm willing to, but I currently don't. I think that the the argument in favor of putting Wilder in your top 10, uh, which people some people have been doing that for a couple of years now, and it kind of boggles the mind. Vladimir Klitschko in his prime, to me, was sort of a middle of the top 10 kind of guy, not... Uh, as some people uh, had him way up near the top. So uh, I, I'm with you, Brian, that at the current moment, I there is not a single heavyweight I even really consider putting in my top 10 pound for pound. Hashtag never forget that there was once an American journalist who had Vladimir Klitschko number one pound for pound and Floyd retired. <laughs> so much subtweeting going on here. <laughs> so much. By the way, quick real-time fact check. Rub of the green is a golf term. 
Oh, okay. All right. Uh, Golf, snooker, I feel like it all kind of goes together. All, all those uh, either either European or preppy sports or whatever. I don't know. Right. Nice. It's all outside my purview. Um, so last topic here. Uh, and part of me doesn't want to talk about this, but it's unavoidable and it'll get us downloads from the masses, I suspect. So let's do it. Uh, will Floyd Mayweather box professionally in 2020? And more specifically, will we see a Mayweather-Pacquiao rematch? Do you view that as likely, unlikely, nearly impossible? What's your read on how realistic it is? Uh, BC, what's your take? I feel like I have a, not inside knowledge on this, but a different take because I also cover mixed martial arts for a living. And I regularly not only interview, but listen to interviews done with UFC President Dana White, who we all know is teasing, uh, you know, some sort of move to enter into the boxing business, maybe even if it's just outbidding people for purse bids and putting fights on UFC Fight Pass. But even as recently as just a couple of days ago when he sat down with ESPN's Brett Okamoto, to hear Dana White be asked about that handshake deal him and Floyd did, and to hear him say, look, this deal is for Floyd to work with us and it's for Floyd to box, that has to tell me that A, Floyd will fight again in 2020, hmm. but B, he's too smart. For it to come against any kind of legitimate opponent and right. certainly not a revitalized Manny Pacquiao at 41 who guys, he just beat Keith freaking Thurman gave him his first loss in one of the fight of the year uh, nominees. So this tells me that Floyd's still a businessman still yearns for the spotlight, but he also realizes that he made a hell of a lot of money against a Conor McGregor. And if they can work something like that again, using Dana White, using the star power of whomever is the biggest UFC name at that moment. Could it be a Conor rematch? Could it be Habib Nurmagomedov? Could it be this guy, Jorge Masvidal, who's really becoming a crossover name as sort of this gangster uh, street fighter turned legitimate championship contender? I would think, guys, that's much, much, much more likely. When was the last time we saw Floyd? Let's not forget it was against a 20-year-old Japanese kickboxer, barely <laughs> right. featherweight, and right. seemed to not realize the stakes or the danger and just got his ass kicked by Floyd. So um, I'd love Mayweather Pacquiao, too. I think there's a big market for it. I think it would matter. I think putting Floyd Zero back on the line one more time is in- entirely sellable, but He's too smart. Good God, he's too smart. Look at his matchmaking run. He's freaking brilliant. He was, He knew, guys, and you know this. We've had this discussion a million times. He knew that when he was 38 and Manny was 36, he was going to be able to win that fight nine, you know, eight out of ten times, whatever. He knew when he was 32 and Manny was 30 that it was going to be a much harder fight. He probably knows that when he's 43 and Manny's 41, it's kind of a 50-50 fight all over again. We ain't going down that road. So to clarify, um, you mentioned a handshake deal. Is is that the sense? Is that what Dana is saying? That there's nothing on paper there? That it is a handshake deal? Yeah, Dana has said in multiple interviews now that they made a handshake deal. They realized the value of working with each other, and that Dana's so confident he's going to wait until this. I don't know why he's going to wait this long, but he said he's going to wait until the summer to sit down with Heyman, and he mentioned three or four times how easy Heyman is to work with and how much he respects him. So that, again, leads me to believe it's a late 2020 kind of MMA boxing crossover. Uh, if it's a handshake deal, I think Dana's going to end up being disappointed. I know he's a savvy operator, but... Look, I, you don't I, Floyd's weaknesses. Just rub him the green, Karen, all right? <laughs> he, well, he, he likes golf? Exactly. <laughs> Meet me at Girl Collection, all right? Let's do it. He, he does love attention. He loves dumping all over other people's uh, fight cards. He does love the speculation that's going to keep going about him fighting again, but he loves that. So unless, so my take is that no, he's not going to do it again. He's just going to continue enjoying teasing us. But I do think the safe option to say is he's not going to box a boxer right. ever again, right? And I, I can understand what Brian's saying that if he's going to get in the in the ring again, it's going to be against some washed up 124 pound uh, UFC fighter or something like that. But I don't see him being in a serious I don't think he's ever going to fight a professional boxer ever again not this year not not ever again yeah I'm right with you guys I think that we could see him in the ring in some sort of exhibition or some sort of circus fight against an MMA fighter but not in a fight that really risks 
that 50 and 0 record. Uh, and just like you said, Kieran, he loves the spotlight. He loves keeping his name out there. He likes knowing that people are buzzing over the idea of a Maypack too. That exactly. makes him feel good. Um, but at age 43, which is what he'll turn next month to risk that perfect record, I just don't see it. Uh, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but maybe at best about a 5% chance of Maypack 2 happening. I, I wouldn't go any higher than that. You guys have played Maypack 1 hindsight, and I know that we've been back and forth over the years. Was Manny's shoulder really injured? Was that some last-minute excuse to try to create buzz for a rematch? Did he really jump in the, the sea of life and his shoulder just healed because of the salt and the water? And under the, you know, Put that out of the, the topic for a second. Do you guys believe if Manny had a healthy shoulder that that could have been a split decision 50-50 fight? I mean, it was it was pretty much even entering the championship rounds on all three cards. Yeah, it was a Floyd Mayweather fight. I remember when right. Eric and I did our post-HBO podcast, our post-fight HBO podcast, we started it with, we were hoping we would see a Manny Pacquiao fight, but we saw a Floyd Mayweather fight, which was keep it kind of even in the first half. Figure your guy out, take him, just dominate down the sec- down the stretch, and and then just ease ease to the finishing line. And, and I think that's what we saw. Floyd was just better than Manny, uh, especially at that stage of their career. Well, I, I think criticized so. Manny so much afterwards, guys, for not going for it. But has hindsight of five years removed made you guys believe more that that wasn't a hundred percent Manny Pacquiao at age thirty six? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly mm-hmm. it's certainly possible that that everything he said about the shoulder was true. And then, of course, they started backpedaling because they were getting into legal trouble for, and having people sue because right. uh, they, they they ripped him off by fighting uh, with an, uh, an undisclosed injury and getting uh, getting shots in the shoulder and, and so forth. So I don't know if we'll ever quite know the real truth and how injured he was. But I tend to agree with Kieran that at that stage in their in their respective careers, the result was was going to be that way almost no matter what. However, uh, I, I will stand by the take that just because the fight turned out that way in, was it 2015? Is that when that fight finally yeah. happened? In 2015, that that does not mean that Floyd Mayweather would have necessarily won in 2011. Uh, I right. still, you know, I still might slightly favor, uh, favor Floyd, but, uh, you know, it, it at that moment, Floyd won the fight. It doesn't necessarily prove that he would have beaten him at any point in their careers. And the only reason I bring that up, guys, is because of this late career resurgence of Manny. Like, I right. don't think we ever would have thought at that point that Manny could have had a 2019 borderline fight of the year campaign. So that's what's actually causing me to question if he's this good against Keith Thurman, he probably should have been a little bit better against Floyd, even with the matchup problems. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it, it's all about uh, getting in that uh, that sea of life, as you said, Brian. And so I, I would suggest maybe you do that. It'll clear up your uh, your syphilis and your herpes real quick. Well, I'd love to go to the hot tub at the gym, but is that illegal when you have pneumonia? <laughs> I mean, a lot of people do gross things in hot tubs. Yeah, you know? hey, only one way to find out. That's what I said. There you go. There you go. Hey, BC. Hey, look, man, thanks for joining us, and uh, Happy New Year to you. And here's hoping that in 2020, all our male and female boxing parts get the rub of the green. <laughs> Sorry you're going to have to edit out most of my, my commentary here, but great talking with you guys. <laughs> it's always a pleasure, buddy. Thanks, Thank Brian. Get well soon, my friend. All right, it's time for our news segment, and there's really not a lot of news to cover on this week's podcast, uh, so we'll pretty much breeze right through this. Uh, And no, James Bagg Jr. quitting Twitter probably doesn't count as news, Uh, although it's worth mentioning because it makes the original Jim Bagg the last bag standing on Twitter. Uh, And if you want to know more about Jim Bagg, Ask Steve Farhead. Uh, Anyway, in terms of real news, uh, just two quick things. Uh, First, Ryan Garcia's next fight has been announced. The young heartthrob, appropriately, will fight on Valentine's Day, February 14th, against Francisco Fonseca, with Jorge Linares fighting on the undercard. Uh, And second, some sad news. Uh, Four-time former cruiserweight titleist Carlos Sugar De Leon died on New Year's Day at age 60. Cause of death is not known. De Leon was one of the very first cruiserweight champs, winning a belt for the first time in 1980. And notably, he lost in 1988 to Evander Holyfield in a fight to unify all the major cruiserweight titles. Kieran, anything to comment on regarding any of these news items? So I'd somehow missed the Carlos de Leon news, um, and I thought it was terribly sad. Uh, 60 years old is no age to die. I mean, I have absolutely no idea about the state of his health um, before this. Um, kids, uh, de Leon was a really good fighter. Um, in an age when Cruiserweight, which had recently been created as a vision, I think when it first started, it was not taken particularly seriously. Yeah. And yet, um, 
uh, ironically, very soon after its creation, was perhaps its golden age in many respects. Um, you know, it reached a level in many respects that it has, hasn't quite matched since, uh, at least up until very recently. Uh, four times, as you mentioned, he held a cruiserweight belt, going 11-4-1 in title bouts. Uh, and one of those losses was by DQ for hitting after the bell. Um, overall, he went 53-8-1, De Leon. But as well as that DQ, that also includes two very late career losses at heavyweight to Corey Sanders and Brian Nielsen. Um, you know, coming on the heels of concerns about the health of Leon Spinks, who incidentally, De Leon also beat. Um, it's just very sad news that just to start the year. So yep. um, all the best to, to his family and friends there. All right. Well, let's finish the podcast uh, by reaching into the listener mailbag for the first time in a few months. Uh, remember, you can send us questions anytime on Twitter. Just use the hashtag AskShowPod, A-S-K-S-H-O-P-O-D. And we start with a simple question from Steve Smith at Smitty0110, who asks, how did you both get into the boxing business? Uh, we've answered this question in the past, but it's a new year. We may have some new listeners. It's worth re-answering quickly. Uh, so, Kieran, you go first. Um, well, perhaps appropriately and topically given current events, it was to some extent a result of the Iraq war. Uh, I was living in a cabin in Alaska writing about environment and science issues uh, in 2003 when some friends and I put together a very, very stupid and not in any way to be encouraged or admired website um, called We Love the Iraqi Information Minister.com, which was devoted to that if, if you remember the Iraq war, there was a, an information minister who kept saying things like, there are no Americans anywhere here as U.S. tanks rolled past in the background. You know, these were back in the days when we thought the notion of, of politicians and the like just brazenly lying was somehow <laughs> notable and funny. Um, anyway, so uh, it became this odd viral success, and we made an embarrassing amount of money from selling Iraqi information minister T-shirts and mouse pads and coffee mugs. And anyway, so that allowed me to do something that I'd been wanting to do for a little while, which was to sort of freshen up my creative juices by writing about something entirely different. Um, than the, the environment and science stuff I'd been doing. And I'd always been a fan of boxing. I watched fights, you know, bought pay-per-views, enjoyed reading The Ring, except for that James Bad guy. He was a total git dick. <laughs> right? Um, right? Cool. Talentless and, uh, hat. Glad, glad I never had to work with him. Um, <laughs> and I always wanted to go to Las Vegas as well. So I took myself off to Vegas um, with my ill-gotten gains uh, to write a book about boxing in Las Vegas. And I spent eight or nine months or so in Vegas, getting to know people in the business, attending fights, getting credentialed, interviewing people, and at the end of it, totally failing to sell the book that I had planned to write and blowing through all the money that I'd earned from the stupid <laughs> website. Um, but I, in the process, I was kicking around enough press rooms and that uh, I ended up getting a freelance gig writing for ESPN.com and then a freelance gig stringing for Reuters. Um, and then Chris Vivian, a producer for HBO.com, saw me constantly cracking wise at the bar and the MGM Grand with Burt Sugar and decided to put us on camera together. And we started to do a bunch of digital pieces. And then that led from there to further work with HBO and then to Showtime, where we are now. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, my story is uh, not nearly as interesting as yours. It does not involve me making millions selling coffee <laughs> mugs, but uh, or thousands, <laughs> tens of thousands, maybe not millions. I don't know. We won't get into your exact finances, but point is, you blew it all in Vegas. My story involves exactly. none of that. Uh, I was fresh out of college, um, didn't follow boxing, knew I wanted to go into sports journalism with my mathematical economics degree, as one does, uh, and answered an ad in the paper from the Ring magazine. Uh, they were hiring a new associate editor because among the three editors on the staff, two were leaving at once, uh, both Steve Farhood and Eric Carabell, who went on to much success with ESPN Fantasy. Both of them were leaving. Only Nigel Collins remained. They needed to make some hires quickly, and boxing knowledge was <laughs> secondary to knowing how to write and edit. So despite not really knowing much about boxing at all, uh, I got the job, uh, soon advanced from associate editor to managing editor, and actually worked there for seven and a half years full-time before leaving for another full-time job, and uh, boxing has been my side gig ever since, and uh, I've freelanced all over the place, and... Uh, the the ending is similar to Karen's HBO podcast, Showtime podcast. Here we are. And still, fortunately, in a position where boxing knowledge is not necessarily required <laughs> relative to the ability to just bluff one's way through it all. Right. I, I basically have this gig because I know how to record a podcast. I know how to plug in the, uh, the, the headset microphone into the computer and push the record button and send it off. That's really my main skill at this point. And I have an accent. And it's as simple <laughs> as that. Yeah. There you go. Now that's so there you go. So you too, kids. 
can have a future in boxing media. Uh, next up is a question from frequent mailbagger David Cushion, who writes, uh, guys, politics slash promoters slash networks aside, in a perfect world, which two opponents would you most like to see Canelo face in 2020? For me, it's probably Jamal Charlo and Callum Smith with a trilogy fight with Triple G, a close third. Thanks, guys. Uh, those are solid choices. Uh, Smith, Charlo, Triple G. But regular listeners should know who my first choice is for Canelo. Oh. It's Artur Beterbiev. It's not happening because the reward is not worth the risk for Canelo. But I love that fight. I think it's just a great matchup, great clash of styles. Canelo would be outgunned physically, but I think he'd be a very live underdog. Uh, my second choice, I'm not as hyped for a third fight with Triple G as I once was. So I think it's between the other ones that David named, yeah. uh, Charlo and Smith. Those are both good competitive fights in which I'd favor Canelo. Uh, I guess maybe I'd go with Charlo. Uh, Jamal seems to have separated himself slightly as the better of the two Charlos. Uh, and with a Canelo fight, we'd find out definitively whether he's the goods or not. Yeah, yeah. I knew you were going to go with Better BF, so I was happy to leave that one to you. And also it's... Given that Canelo has given up the 175-pound belt that he won from Sergei right. Kovalev, it's pretty obvious that um, he's not sticking around. He may be many things, Canelo Alvarez. Stupid is not one of them. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. He's he's looking um, at, at a much better uh, risk-reward ratio. And uh, and honestly, it's hard to disagree with David's suggestion in that regard. Um, I really don't have anything to improve on there. Um, I, I don't know how likely Charlo is. But we are imagining a perfect world, so I'd certainly want to see that. I think probably what would make sense if, if Canelo does want to get back down to middleweight would be you know, having been at 175 to maybe face Smith at 68 and then Charlo at 160. Um, you know, what I do think is interesting is, is I agree with David and I agree with you. The, the way in which the boil has gone off Triple G3 mm-hmm. um, so rapidly uh, and to a large extent, I think that was the result of Glovkin's struggle with Derevianchenko, added to the, the sense that he's perhaps not quite who he was before. Um, you know, last year, and I can't remember when it was, either before or after Canelo fought Danny Jacobs, you asked me on the podcast, something to the effect of, is there any other opponent that's acceptable for Canelo other than Golovkin in the fall. And at that time, I was like, no, it's absolutely outrageous. We can't possibly see. I'm paraphrasing the question and answer slightly, but not very much, eh? Um, But I don't think we're there now at all. I mean, I think with with what appears to be a slight decline in in, in Golovkin and with Canelo going up to 175 and facing Kovalev, yeah, we need to see a strong performance from Golovkin in the spring, I think, to make that one a, a super hot ticket again, I think. Yeah. All right, uh, last one here from uh, Kilpat at KIL787. He says, who is the fighter with a top-level career who still didn't live up to his potential? I'm thinking James Tony. He had a Hall of Fame career, but could have done even more if he avoided extreme weight gain, PEDs, etc. So what do you think, Kira? It's very hard to top that one. I think that's an excellent example. Um, so I was surprised to find that James Tony last fought as recently as May 2017. I haven't realized that. Right. So under the new rules, uh, he'll be on the next ballot, I assume, for the Hall of Fame. Um, but even with you know the sort of expanded admission criteria, he'll struggle to get in on the first ballot. And that's partly because it's such a strong ballot. Um, but also... Because of the way that successful of a career as he had, the way he just pissed away some of it. Um, you know, at his best, James Tony was a phenomenon. But he, uh, you know, as uh, Kill Pat mentioned, he always struggled with weight and conditioning and indeed money. And he could be a pain in the ass to deal with. Um, just ask anyone who was involved with Goose and Tudor promotions what things were like when word was that James was in the elevator on the way to the office. Um, then, yeah, then there were the failed drug tests, the disappearance from view after the Roy Jones loss, the David Tiberi scoring controversy. Then he had that great comeback, which looked as if he put it all together again. Um, t- tremendous performances at Cruiserweight, the win over at Vander Holyfield, and then the perhaps inevitable somewhat sad decline over heavyweight again. Um, I guess another person for whom similar could be said is Riddick Bowe. Mm-hmm. Um, on paper, amazing achievements. First man to stop Holyfield. Tony was the second and the last one. Beat every opponent he ever faced. Um, only one uh, official defeat with Holyfield participant in one of the greatest heavyweight title fights of all time. But you still feel that he could have been so much more. He had the talent and the size to be far and away, I think, the greatest heavyweight of his generation, but he fell so far short of what he could have been. Uh, again, through through lack of dedication, you know, and you throw in his 
three-day stint in the Marine Corps and the kidnapping of his wife, um, the crazy Galotta fights, among other things. And you do have a picture of someone who was never totally in control of his career or, or his life. And, and if you hear him talk now, well, that kind of, you know, you get a sense of perhaps partly why that might be. But great fighter, but gosh, could have been just generational. Um, and one more, the risk of delivering at least a mildly warm take. Mike Tyson. Phenomenal, hmm. transformational figure in boxing. And maybe actually what he achieved was exactly what he could achieve, given right. you know his, his relative physical limitations. Uh, and maybe the hype was always going to be too much. But you know, look at the feints and the head movement of early Tyson and compare that to the straight-ahead, can't-really-be-asked front-runner style of, of later Tyson. And it's hard enough to think there wasn't at least something more there that we could have seen, you know, if only he'd never met Don King or perhaps Robin Givens or been such a self-hating, self-destructive force. So maybe, not on the same level as those other guys, but maybe to some extent. Yeah, I, I like that warm take. I hadn't even thought about Tyson, but yeah, there's a case there. He's a guy who got absolutely everything out of his ability for a little while and right. then uh, and then didn't live up to his potential uh, for the second, third, fourth, fifth acts of his career. <laughs> right. um, but uh, you know, it, it's so Kilpat asks a top level fighter who had a top level career. So at first I was looking for uh, other Hall of Famers and Riddick Bowe was the first name that jumped out at me also. Uh, and then the other ones that I looking down the list of guys in the hall, there were two others that I thought qualified in different ways. H Hector Camacho, who mm, mm. adjusted his style. Uh, we'll we'll Put that, so uh, pleasant, uh, use, use that word for it instead of something meaner. Say he adjusted his style after the Rosario fight and uh, was never truly great again. Um, and the other one is Aaron Pryor, whose prime was yes. shortened by cocaine problems. Um, but I also looked at some good fighters who didn't have Hall of Fame careers uh, and came up with with a few more recent ones. Uh, certainly Edwin Valero is an example. Yeah. Um, there's a new book out uh, about him by Don Stradley. Uh, if you don't know the Edwin Valero story, it's disturbing. Uh, but long story short, he was an undefeated rising star who had real mental and emotional problems yeah. and he killed his wife and then himself. Uh, and this all happened uh, before he'd really even reached his peak as a boxer. Um, also, I was thinking... Maybe Victor Ortiz applies. Um, mm. I don't know that he had the talent to be great, but I think he could have been a little better than he was and just didn't have the mental toughness to get to the top. And here's my here's my warm take or my sort of uh, the, uh, a suggestion you wouldn't normally think of. How about Emmanuel Augustus? Um, I mm. think if he'd been handled differently, if he'd been treated mm. as an A-side instead of an opponent his whole career, he would be remembered now as a really good fighter and and more than just a talented oddity, which is kind of how yeah. we remember him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's an interesting take. I don't, I don't mind admitting, I was on that Victor Ortiz hype train at the beginning. Yeah. I did think, I thought Ortiz was going to be really, really good. But, um, well, there you go. Exactly. I mean, it just, it goes to show that it's not just about, about talent. It's not even just about skill. There's an awful a lot to do with dedication and desire. And it's a, it's a tough freaking business. And like you said with Augustus, boy, oh boy, who you end up being handled by. That's yep. for damn sure. Yeah, yep. absolutely. All right. That will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, thanks again to our man, Brian Campbell, for pitching in from his deathbed. Uh, we will be back <laughs> next week with lots of Showtime Boxing today discuss looking back on the shields habazine triple header and ahead to the 250th episode of showbox the new generation most likely with the help of a guest or two from the showtime family until then thank you for listening